Well, uh, I picked this passage. It may not seem like it, but I picked this passage because I wanted to preach on something practical. And it may not seem like it, especially based on the last few verses, but for my money, this is probably one of the most practical texts in all of the Bible, definitely in all of the New Testament. If you wanted to summarize this passage, you could basically summarize it as a question, and that question would be, why do conflicts happen? In other words, why do we fight with each other? Right? Why, do we, why do we argue? Why do we quarrel? Why do we battle with each other? Why, why do conflicts, why do sinful conflicts happen? Some of you may have had conflict with someone perhaps this week. Some of you perhaps this morning. We were, you know, my wife and I maybe were, were very close to that this morning. It was an early morning for us. Wherever there are Christians, there's conflict. And this isn't to, to bash on, on Christians. Wherever they're, they're human beings, there's conflict. But I think it's a, it's a sobering thing uh, to remember that almost every single letter of the New Testament has some sort of command, some sort of verse, some sort of exhortation regarding conflict. And these are, these are Christians, including this letter, these are Christians that uh, perhaps they, they met Jesus himself or they were personally discipled by one of the apostles of Jesus. And so, brethren, if, if the apostles themselves, if the early church themselves had to wrestle with conflict, sinful conflict, we're not going to escape it. So I want us to look at this text and see why do conflicts happen, and then how do we, how do we battle against conflict, how do we address it. Okay, so let's take a look at the text here. James basically says here that conflicts happen... Because of our sinful desires. Conflicts happen because of our sinful desires. Let me read verses 1 to 2. James writes here, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he basically answers this question that we're asking, right? What causes fights? What causes arguments? Our passions. This is from the ESV. In different translations, it actually says, our desires. And so what James is saying here basically is, the reason why we fight, the reason why we argue, is because we want what we can't have. Simple as that. We want what we can't have. The Greek word here, I don't always, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do have a little bit of Greek knowledge. And the Greek word here for desire or passion is hedone, And that's actually where we get our term for hedonism, if you know what hedonism is. Hedonism is this idea where your goal in life is to obtain as much pleasure for yourself as possible. So it's kind of inherently a selfish way of living if you do it the wrong way. You're looking for your own self, your own pleasure, your own enjoyment, your own comfort. So again, what James is saying here is that what causes our arguments then is this selfishness, a selfish sinful desire. What I want is more important than what you want. In other words, it's a mentality that says, I'm king, and if you do not do what I want you to do, then I'm going to war with you. That's what causes arguments. Now, two quick things I want to point out here. Okay, First thing I think that's really interesting is that James does not allow us to blame our arguments on other people. Okay, So, you may have had conflict recently. You may have had arguments. You may have gotten angry. The other person may have been, let's face it, 
selfish, perhaps childish, perhaps irrational or emotional, uh, idiotic, whatever you want to call the other person. But James is saying here, that doesn't matter how, how ridiculous the other, person's, the, the other person is, it's not the other person's fault. It's your fault. Your anger, your sin is your fault. It's from your own desire. Let me give you an illustration. Um, my, I mentioned my daughter. My daughter's almost a year and a half now, and she gets cuter every day. But when she was a one-year-old, uh, we were trying to start to feed her, feed her solids, right? Always a fun time. Uh, when we started to feed her solids, people recommend that you teach them sign language. Okay. So if you do this, that means more, right? If you pat your chest, that means, like, please. I don't know. I don't really know the sign language that well because, as you'll see, we were not very successful in teaching her sign language. Okay. So I would sit there with her and just over and over, I'd be like, Leah, do you want some more food? And I'd hold the spoonful of food and I'd say, Leah, just go like this. She would refuse to do it. I'd even move her hands together every time. I'd feed her, move her hands. Feed her, move her hands. She refused to do it. And I said, okay, wait, I have a great idea. She knows how to clap on command. She, she doesn't know this, but she knows how to clap. So I said, okay, Leah, do you want more food? Just clap your hands. Just clap. And I would hand her the spoon, and she refused to clap. And so for me, imagine how disrespected I feel by my, by my disobedient one-year-old. I didn't even realize you could disobey at one-year-old. Apparently you can. And so to my shame... I got so mad at her that I basically slammed the table and yelled at her and pointed fingers at her. And, you know, I, she, hopefully she didn't know what I was doing, but I was sinfully angry with her. Now, here's my point. Who's at fault for my sin? Who's at fault for my anger? Well, in some sense, okay, sure, my daughter is disobedient. My daughter's unruly, just throwing, slapping my spoon all around, flinging f- food around the room. That's true, but at the end of the day, what James is saying here is that my daughter's disobedience is not the reason for my anger. The reason for my anger is my own desires. Does that make sense? So, you can't blame your sin on anyone else. You also can't even really blame your sin on the devil, on Satan. Isn't that interesting? Right? He doesn't say what causes quarrels and what causes fights. It's Uh, Satan's passions, it's Satan's desires. He doesn't say that. He says it's your own desires. Now, I understand that later on in this passage, he does say that we need to resist the devil, and I will get to that. That's true. The devil tempts us. Earlier in James, in chapter 3, verse 15, he does say that sin is demonic. That's true. Okay. But he still does not allow us to blame our actions on Satan. It's our own responsibility. I think the best illustration of this is actually if you turn a page back to chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. This is really interesting. James says here, he says in verse 13, chapter 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Then he says, but each person, this is verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted when... And at this moment, this is the perfect opportunity for James to say, okay, look, you're not tempted by God, you're tempted by Satan. But that's not what he says, right? What does he say? What does the text say? He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He doesn't put the responsibility on Satan. He puts it on ourselves, our own hearts, our own 
inordinate desires, our own sinful desires. Um, second thing I want to say. Not only is fighting and arguing our own fault, but it's also really serious. Right? You see that in verse 2. Uh, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's really interesting. I, uh, remember, he's writing to Christians here. So it's very doubtful that he's actually talking about literal murder. Okay? They're, not, they're not actually physically taking each other's lives. That would be a crazy uh, small group experience okay, if that was actually happening. He's talking not of literal murder. He's talking of metaphorical murder. Not actual murder, but murdering in your heart. Now, some of you may know this, but James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Right? They share the same mother, Mary. And James, like any good brother, he's quoting, he's quoting his brother Jesus. If Jesus was my brother, I would quote him too. And he's quoting Jesus here. James, more so than any other book in the New Testament, quotes from the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what he's saying here. If you, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 5.21, Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. He says, You have heard the command, you shall not murder. It's from the Ten Commandments. You know this very well. But I say to you, if you are even angry with your brother or sister, then you are in danger of the fire of hell. You've murdered someone in your heart, and you're in danger of hell. This is serious stuff. And, you know, I preached this message to um, uh, the Louisville Rescue Mission, which is a place where um, homeless guys and guys with addictions are trying to, trying to get clean. And I said, look, uh, I know there's a lot of angry, sinfully angry conflict that goes on in here. That stuff is not just men being men. It's also, anger is not just spouses being spouses. Uh, Friends being friends, co-workers against their bosses. It's not, it's not acceptable just because it's road rage. And I'm preaching to myself here. This is serious stuff. It's murdering in your own heart. Now, uh, I know this has been um, pretty hard to hear. Kind of a tough pill to swallow already. But James isn't done yet. He says, uh, starting in the middle of verse 2, he starts to peel back kind of the layers of this onion even further. Start to Starts to kind of expose our hearts a little bit more. Let me take a look at verse 2 again in the middle. He says here, you do not have because you do not ask. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, okay, the reason why you sin is because because you don't have, you're not getting what you want, right? You know why you don't get what you want? Because you're not praying to God for it. Isn't that wild? Then he says, hey, before you get too excited, I think a lot of you, even if you prayed about it, you still wouldn't get what you want. You know why? Because you're not praying for the right motivations. You're praying about your own pleasures. You're praying about your own desires. You're not praying about God's desires. You're not praying about God's kingdom, God's will. You're praying about your own kingdom, your own will. Another illustration from my own life. It's very, it's very easy to find examples of anger from my own life. Um, as I mentioned, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Jen. And we've been married for over five years now. And uh, just to embarrass you a little bit, uh, for, for five years, okay, five years, we've probably been late to church probably half of the Sundays that we've been married together. Okay? Now, it's not always Jen's fault. Sometimes it's my fault. Some, oftentimes it's Leah's fault nowadays. 
Um, but to my shame, no matter whose fault it is, I always get angry at Jen. I always think Jen could be doing more. Jen, it's, it's Jen's fault, even if it's my fault. And then, uh, on top of all that, I'll have um, really self-righteous kind of anger and feelings. And I'll say to myself, you know, you're not, you're not late to work. Do you, do you care about your boss more than you care about God? You know, stuff like that. And I'll make it seem like I'm, I'm caring about God's honor. You know? And then I meditated on this text months ago. And then it dawned on me that in five years of marriage and in a couple of years of dating when we were going to church together, not once had I ever prayed that we would be to church on time. Not once. Now, that's hundreds of times going to church. Not once did I pray. And even if I did pray, I realized that I probably wouldn't be praying with the right motivation. I may make it seem like, oh, I care about God. I care about worshiping God, honoring Him. Actually, I just care about myself. I care about not being embarrassed, walking through the doors late again. I care about people not thinking that I can manage my family well. I can do something as small as being on church. You know, I, I'm thinking about my own identity, how people perceive me. I'm not thinking about God. And so let me, just, let me just say this. Is it wrong to want to be uh, on time, you know, not late, not embarrassed? No, that's not wrong, right? It's not wrong to want to be uh, on time to church. Going back to my previous illustration, it's not wrong for me to want my child to be obedient, to have her not throw food around. It's not wrong, thinking about you know, past arguments I've had, it's not wrong to want to be respected by people, to want affection by people, to want to be liked, to want people to treat you kindly. It's not, these, aren't, these aren't bad desires. These are good desires. And sometimes they're biblical desires. But this is what James is saying. They become sinful desires when they cause you to get angry, when they cause you to throw a temper tantrum, to murder someone in your heart because of it. You've turned your desire. When you, when you sin in order to get what you want, you've turned your desire into an idol that has become your God. Um, I took a biblical counseling class when I was in seminary, and um, the counseling professor gave this illustration I'll never forget. He said, he said, you know, in our hearts, at the center, there's a throne room. At the center of that throne room is a throne. And what happens when we sin is we have all these competing desires, affection, respect, a clean house, peace and quiet. Our desires, good as they may be, they, they sprout legs. And they start to walk up the throne. And they're all trying to get onto the throne. They're all trying to sit on the throne. They all want the crown. But only Christ deserves a seat on the throne. And so all of the Christian life is making sure that we do not allow our desires to grow legs. And we give Christ his crown. So, let me recap a little bit. Conflicts happen because of our sinful desires. We, we want what we can't have. And so we fight and we argue with people. And yet, starting in verse 4, James, he starts to shift his focus a little bit. Uh, So far, it's been kind of uh, horizontal in focus, person to person. But James starts to say, actually, this conflict that you have with other church members or, or whoever, family members, it's not primarily horizontal. It's not primarily a person to person thing. It's primarily a vertical thing. It's primarily between you and God. Right? He says that in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. And so James is saying here that you may think that your conflict is just between you and your spouse or you and your friend or you and your child, but in reality, it's between you and God. You, you may think that you're just, just becoming you know, your spouse's enemy or your, your co-worker's enemy, but actually you're becoming God's enemy. You're sitting primarily against God, foundationally against God. I think of um, the story of King David. King David was a great king, but he had his vices, to say the least. And he, as you probably well know, he uh, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He was a married man. She was a married woman. He lured her, committed adultery with her. And then, to top it all off, he had her husband killed. Sent him into battle with the intentions that he might die. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And yet, and yet, for whatever reason, in Psalm 51, verse 4, David prays this. He says, Against you and you alone have I sinned, Lord. Against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. Now, that, does, that doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. Of course he did. That doesn't mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba's husband. Of course he did. He killed him. But primarily, foundationally, we have to remember that our sin is against God himself. If you want to read about this theme a little bit more, um, you can read the book of Hosea. I'm not going to go into the book of Hosea, but basically Hosea there describes Israel as having played the whore. It says, Israel has deserted her husband to pursue other lovers, other gods. Now, again, it might seem surprising that I'm... There's a lot of... You know, serious words. It's not every day that you hear about um, how we played the whore. Okay, I understand this is this is strange, but it's strange because it speaks to the seriousness of our sin. And not only that, but it also speaks to the fact that obedience is not so much about following rules. It's more than just saying "don't be angry." Okay, obedience is about loving a person, Jesus Christ. That's what obedience is primarily about. So whenever we disobey the Lord, whether it's by getting angry or lusting or envying, we're not just harmlessly engaging in friendship with the world. We're cheating on God. There's a seriousness, again, to our sin. Now, let me just say, again, I, uh, if you know me, you know I don't, I don't like conflict, and uh, this is a very confrontational passage I did, piss, I did uh, pick this passage, okay, but uh, it's not my joy to pick confrontational passages. I realize this has been negative in tone. It's not every passage that calls you both a murderer and an adulterer, so I understand that. However, this passage does offer hope. Uh, it offers hope to, if you know me, you, you, sometimes you feel like, why can't I just let some things go? Why do I have to make everything into a, a sinful conflict? There's hope for people like me, people like you. And here's the hope. James says here that the solution to our sinful desires is to remember that God still desires you, even though you're sinful. He says this in verse 5. He says, God jealously yearns for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. God jealously yearns for us. Now, that word yearns, it's actually in the Greek. It's the same word for the word desire. And that's not an accident. That's purposeful on the author's part. God, we yearn for sin. And sometimes I I cannot fathom why I can't stop yearning for sin. But despite our yearning, our desire for sin, 
God still yearns for us. It's unbelievable. He's jealous for us. Now, that, that word jealous is kind of a weird word. You don't, when you think of God, you don't think of him as, as jealous. It has a kind of a negative connotation in our culture. But what that means is that the world is filled with potential suitors that are battling for our affection, for our heart, desires that are trying to grow legs, competing with God. But God is saying here that none of those things will ultimately satisfy us. Only the Lord will. Only following the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. Think about why you argue. You want affection. You want attention. You want respect. You want grace. You want stability. All of the desires that you want, all of the desires that cause you to fight, only God is the solution for those desires. He is the final desire of all our desires. So listen, here we speak of the gospel often. We speak of the good news of Christianity often. Here's the good news. Even if you have no desire for God, and I know in a, in a room like this, that's, that's bound to be a lot of us. Even if right now you're feeling like you have no desire for the Lord, you feel like you've repeatedly failed him, you've repeatedly disowned him, he still desires you. Jesus desired you so much that he died for you. He drew near to the cross to die so that we might draw near to him and live. That's the love of God for us. That's the good news of the gospel for us. Let me just say this too. All right. Maybe many of us in this room are looking to, to this Bible for moralism. Let me just say that moralism is not good news. The good news of the gospel is not that we'll read this chapter and say, man, I'm going to read this, I'm going to do this, and I'm never going to sin again. That is not the good news. You will never save yourself. The good news is not that we will stop sinning by our own power. The gospel is that even though I have conflict with my wife, even though I have conflict with God, even though I have conflict with everyone, God still desires me. God still loves me. He still loves you. Do not, do not forget this. Do not allow your, your eyes and your ears to glaze over this. This is the most precious news there is for sinners like us. He still desires us, even when we do not desire him. Now, let me just close with this. Um, we've already kind of talked about why we argue and fight, right? We want what we can't have. Now, the rest of this passage, which I'm only going to briefly go over, is how do we stop arguing and fighting? How do we stop? What do we do? And so the main answer that we see here in verse 6 is that God gives us, our hope is that God gives us the grace to change, right? Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's the first, that's the first thing to know. God gives us grace. That's our hope. The second thing is that we need to humble ourselves in order to receive his grace, we need to humble ourselves. It says, it talks about humility in verse 6. Notice it also talks about humility in verse 10. So basically all the verses in between 6 and 10 are talking about how do we humble ourselves to receive God's grace. And let me just go through these really quickly here. The first thing to note, verse 7, the first thing, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself to God. I know, look, it's almost like every time there's an argument, there's a, there's a crossroads. And you realize that, huh, I can just nip this argument in the bud if I just, if I just give in. I know what they want, I'll just, I'll just give in. And sometimes you feel like you've lost, 
When you've given in to someone else's desires, you've submitted to their desires. But this text is encouraging us to submit to someone else because ultimately, we're submitting to God. Submitting to God. Second thing, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Now, again, I already mentioned it's not the devil's fault that we sin. It's our own fault. But let us not ignore the fact, 1 Peter 5, that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that person might be you. It has been me many times. Satan knows which buttons to push, does he not? Even this morning, we, we probably almost got, got into an argument. Good thing I knew I was going <laughs> to preach on a passage about arguments, so I kind of withheld. But Satan knows that I'm most tempted to argue when I'm tired, when we're trying to get somewhere. He knows what are your buttons. So when you're in the midst of an argument, understand, uh, you can allow Satan to win, or you can understand what's going on and step away from Satan. Resist him. It says here, he will flee from you. What a promise. What a promise for all the power that he has. That he, has he will flee from you if you, just, if you just resist. Third, verse 8, draw near to God. Draw near to him. It's really hard to obey these difficult commands. If you are not even close to the giver of these commands, if you are not abiding with him, if you're not treasuring him, draw near to him. Draw near to him, not just, not, just preventatively, not just preventatively in your devotional time, but also in the midst of, if you feel an argument coming on or any other sin, pray, pray that God might hold you tight, that you might desire him more than anything else. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Satan will flee, but God will draw near. Fourth, lastly, in the midst of your arguments, repent. Turn away from your sin. That's all that repentance means. The word repentance isn't here in this passage, but the idea is here. It says here in the middle of verse 8, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And this is, this is priestly language. This is language that's used to describe priests before they would go into the temple, before they would do a sacrifice. They would have to cleanse themselves. And so this passage is calling us to do the same. Cleanse our hearts, cleanse our hands. Verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is, the, the previous one was priestly language. This one is prophetic language. This is language that the Old Testament prophets would use. Now, let me just say, this passage is not calling us to never laugh again, okay? To never have joy again. That contradicts the rest of James's letter. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here instead is a certain laughter that is laughter against sin. Sin is no laughing matter. So James is saying here, let your laughter against sin be turned to mourning. Mourn over your sin. Don't laugh. It's serious. So, four things. Hopefully that's practical application at the end of this passage. And let me just say here, verse 10 again, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Now some of us, we may feel very humbled by this text. I know I do. I feel very lowered by this text. Especially knowing my, my, my history with, with, with getting angry. I feel humbled. And I imagine many of you do too. Now let me just say this. God does not call us to humble ourselves so that we might stay humbled, but rather, he says, humble yourselves and he will exalt you. He calls us to humble ourselves so that one day we might be exalted with Christ in heaven. I love y'all. I appreciate this time. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you, God, that um, even though we as sinners desire other things more than we desire you, God, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, um, to desire you above anything else, to desire you more than getting in the last word or, or being right or, or whatever. God, I pray, help us to love you. Help us to appreciate the good news of the gospel of grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.